The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Doug Tiemann. He is author of Flying Over the Pig Pen, Leadership Lessons from Growing Up on a Farm. And Doug is president and CEO of Karen Treatment Centers, which is one of the largest, one of our nation's largest provider of addiction and behavioral health care treatment for adolescents, young adults, adults, seniors, and affected families. Uh, he took over the helm in 1995, and uh, he is actually credited with leading this organization to its current standing, uh, a facility that garners more than $100 million in annual revenues. It's also, uh, he operates these centers in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doug. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. Really excited to be on Voice America and uh, an opportunity to visit with you. Great. Well, we're going to start talking right now. Uh, what, in the first question, which is I'm sure the question everybody asks you, what inspired you to write your book? And your book is a memoir, as I understand it, Flying Over the Pig Pen, Leadership Lessons from Growing Up on a Farm. This is your memoir. Why'd you write it? I wrote this book because my, my father, who, who uh, always uh, talked to myself and my brothers about uh, sort of life, and uh, one of the beauties of growing up on a farm is that a parent gets to spend a lot of time with their children. It's you know, unlike uh, the kind of nine-to-five job that most of us have where our children may see us before we head off to work and maybe see us when we get home. Um, you know, on the farm, you're with your parents all the time. And he took the opportunity with, uh, with what happened during the daily farm life to, to teach us lessons, lessons that he said would help us be successful in life, and I just thought there was so much wisdom in that. Even though he, it was always fascinating to me, he would always start out by saying, "You know, I'm not a very educated man, but someday you're going to see some wisdom in all of this, and think, you know, your old man's a pretty smart guy." And uh, in in my 20s, that really clicked in for me, and I started to, at that point in my life, really began to applying all of these lessons and, uh, and, and use them to sort of chart my, my path to become CEO of Karen Treatment Centers uh, in 1995. I then, Doug, what was yep. the biggest lesson that you learned from that? Because your father had to be a, a very wise man to do that. Because after all, he's a farmer. He's on the farm all the time. He's not out there in the community yep. in the same way, say, a CEO of a corporation is. So what was the biggest lesson, leadership lesson that you learned from him that you did take with you when you were in college and then on to next when you became you know, involved as a leader in, uh, in uh, corporate America? There are probably four, four. I call it the chicken story, and I actually start the book with the chicken story. Every chapter starts with a farm story, and the chicken story was very simply this. Number one is you take responsibility for your situation in life. No excuses. Number two was there's people out there who know a lot more than you, so you ask for help. And so the book talks about 
who to ask and how to help. Number three is developing a plan so that you can hold your accountable hold yourself accountable to it, and the net result is you're going to end up with far more than you bargained for. And that's kind of the theme of the book, and uh, the chapters uh, provide very good, interesting lessons, but most importantly, tools on how to actually accomplish that. Okay, taking responsibility for yourself. When was the first time you learned that? Because I think today that's a huge, or that's an issue that we have with a lot of young people, not necessarily taking responsibility for ourselves, you know, blaming it on other people. It's always somebody else's fault, but it's certainly not my fault. So when was the first time you learned on the, on the pig farm from your father, hey, you have to take responsibility for yourself? Because you obviously weren't doing that, I assume, and somehow you had to learn that lesson. That, that's correct. And, my dad would, would use really kind of the line is that, uh, uh, you know, Doug, you grew up on a pig farm. You're going to be competing in life with people who maybe grew up in a city. Maybe their dad was a lawyer. Some people grew up in college-educated families. You didn't. Uh, some people are going to be smarter than you. Some people aren't. He said, you've got what you've got. Learn to really Im- cherish that and make it work for you. And, and I even talk about in the book how I tried to use the fact that I grew up on a pig farm, went to a one-room grade school as an advantage in my life and to really relish that. Uh, I try to also really use this no excuses as it deals with the disease of addiction. And it's one of the things I even talk to our patients about. You know, for some of us, uh, we become addicts maybe because of genetics, or heredity, or trauma, or life, you know, but once you have the disease, it really doesn't matter. So let's don't make excuses for our situation, take responsibility for it, and then let's begin putting together the plan so that we can fly over our pig pen, whatever that pig pen may be. So you ended up having an addiction problem. Yes. And it's interesting, you know, you call it a disease, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that because, you know, I'm in the social work field. Mm Mm-hmm. And it used to be, and, and I'm not sure if this is true now, but in terms of the, the vernacular saying that addiction, that let's say alcohol addiction is a disease, is sort of not taking responsibility. It's a disease or when, that, t- you know, takes over me, that I really don't have, you know, that I'm not the one who's responsible for the addiction. So, um, Yes, that's a, a and, and we use the word disease, and, and, and you know, the nice thing is that there has been so much uh, medical research on it, and uh, you know, the American Medical Association, World Health Organization, have classified uh, addiction as a disease since the 1950s, but it probably wasn't until the late 90s when uh, the National Institutes of Health began to label addiction as a brain chemistry disease. Uh, the brain chemistry is just fundamentally different in an addict, which takes away the opportunity to make choice. I mean, a lot of people who don't have this disease would say, well, I, I don't understand why you just wouldn't stop drinking. Why wouldn't you just stop it too? Uh, unfortunately, the person who is an alcoholic you know, loses that freedom of choice. But where we take responsibility is we take the responsibility for our disease. I have this disease, so I need to now get help and I need to put together a plan so that I don't take that first drink. One yeah, of I'm glad you clarified that because it's like uh, similar. If you ha- are diabetic, then you ha- are diabetic, but you have a responsibility to eat well, exercise, do what you have to do to keep your diabetes under control. You're absolutely right. Uh, pretty much all of the chronic illnesses, whether it's cancer, hypertension, diabetes, have some lifestyle choices that we need to make and the people who make the appropriate lifestyle choices 
do quite well with that chronic illness. I mean, you mentioned diabetes. I mean, hypertension is another great one. You know, you know, the doctor will tell you don't don't eat a double cheeseburger and uh, and French fries twice a day. You, if, if the person who who can't comply with that has a lot more issues with their hypertension re, uh, recurring. Let's talk about. I want to talk about your addiction and when it actually when you when you were diagnosed. How long it went. Mm-hmm. How long it went on before you were diagnosed, and obviously your choice to become uh, head or CEO of the Care and Treatment Centers, which is a, re- a recovery facility, has to do with your own addiction. Because can you tie that all together for us? Sure. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm actually quite unusual in the field in this in the sense that uh, when I entered this field 32 years ago, I was not an alcoholic and uh, really didn't know much about it. And, and that's one of the things that's interesting kind of discussion is can you prevent uh, the disease if you know something about it? Because for the next uh, 25 years, uh, I knew a great deal about this disease and uh, opportunity to interact with the experts. And somewhere along year 20 uh, in, in the field, I began to realize that my social drinking was crossing over uh, the line into abusive drinking and eventually what I would consider alcoholic drinking. And, How would you uh, recognize that? Uh, give us an the, example. Yeah. yeah there, there's, a, there's a great line that we talk about in recovery that says initially the man takes the drink, then the drink takes the drink, and then the drink takes the man. So if you look at it from a, a, a perspective of choice, uh, we start out being able to make a choice to uh, to drink and can put limits to what we'll do and appropriateness to what we'll do. Eventually, for the person who has a problem with alcohol, is that you, the drink starts wanting more drinks, and then eventually and the drink begins to compromise our value system. And so that's what I began to see in my in my own life was the um, disappearance of an opportunity. To control how much I I drank, and uh, as the president of a large addiction treatment center, I'm like you know, I was like trying to figure out how do I go and do this. The embarrassment, the guilt, the shame. I didn't know how to, uh, you know, you know how to address this, and um, and and eventually uh, through uh, praying every week to God that you know help me figure out what's the right thing for me to do. I was fortunate to actually have a DUI in which I did not hurt anybody or myself. And for me, that was uh, the divine intervention that made this public so that I could then um, go and get the help that I needed. And so I've now had seven and a half years of, of uh, continuous uh, recovery, and it's just a, a wonderful life being on this, on this side of the street. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. I, um, obviously, for you, for your family, um, so the DUI was the defining moment. Had mm-hmm. family, I mean, or people at work been trying to point out to you or help you or say, you know, maybe you have a problem, Doug, um, and you were in denial? Or because it, it's a, obviously it, it evolves, it's a, as you yes. say, it, it progresses, the disease. And so that was your defining moment. But were there other people who were involved in that as well, trying to help you to get help? <laughs> and because I know so much about the disease, I was uh-huh. able to very carefully um, keep my drinking compartmentalized. So my wife had no idea. 
Nobody at work had any idea. None of my friends or family members had any idea. So quite frankly, when I had this DUI, everybody just thought, wow, what a, you know, you know, anybody could get a DUI, bad luck, bad, you know, you know, just a bad day. And I said, no, it wasn't bad luck. This was good luck because I have a problem that none of you know about. I know about it's eating away inside and this gives me an opportunity now to get the help that I need. So I How did you hide it? How did you actually I, I did I, I drank when I traveled. I, and and so, you didn't drink when you were at home. Correct. So that was the compartmentalized so I still still had, if you will, a level of willpower to um keep it compartmentalized, but it's a progressive illness, so uh, another year or so, that would have uh, disintegrated as well. And so that's, for me, the, the, the uh, wonderful blessing of uh, being able to have what I consider the, my divine intervention so that uh, I, could, I could then make this public, uh, let the people who I knew and cared about know that I needed help, and the net result of it is... My wife would say I'm a better husband. My children would say I'm a better father. My employer would say I'm a better president and CEO. And, and all of them would, would have probably said I wasn't too bad at any of that beforehand in kind of the classic um, interpretation of um, you know, a high-functioning alcoholic. Um, Which is a new word that's come yeah. on the scene for the past few years. Yeah, a high-functioning alcoholic. Uh, and if someone like yourself, as I understand it, if you are a high-functioning person to begin with and you're bright and you're talented and you have all these leadership qualities, it's easier to hide it because the expectation, you may be not functioning at the level that you could function at, but, you know, as a normal person functioning in everyday life, you do pretty well. So it's hard sometimes for family or friends, as you say, or even people at work to recognize it. Yeah, that's, a, that's a wonderful point, Catherine, is that, the outside looks terrific. Um, you know, people would have seen me coaching Little League, chairman of uh, my uh, children's uh, high school education foundation, chairman of the board of our National uh, Addiction Treatment Providers Association, president of a you know large nonprofit institution. They said, you know, this guy's got it going on, but uh, but. Uh, all of that was on the outside. The inside was the alcoholism was tearing me apart. And it's one of the beauties now that I have an opportunity to serve at Karen Treatment Centers is that we have a number of programs for executives and professionals. And I actually have an opportunity now to share my own experience about, you know, all of us in, you know, whether you're a successful lawyer or a politician or an athlete, you know, we, you know, we make it look like uh, you know, things are pretty good, um, but the beauty of, of recovery is our uh, insides can now match our outsides, and that's uh, one of the things I actually talk about in flying over the pig pen is, is the getting more than you bargain for. It's not just uh, how it looks, but it's also how, how it feels. Yeah. So what would you say specifically to someone who is in recovery, who's recovering from an addiction, uh, alcohol, drugs, um, and they're trying to... Uh, start a career, get back into their career, or get their career back on track. Uh, what's your advice? Um, my advice is is that the book "Flying Over the Pig Pen" can actually be um, quite beneficial for anyone who has a crisis in their life and needs to begin to put together a plan. Because it kind of goes back to the question we talked about at the very beginning. The simple advice, you know, starts with taking responsibility for your situation. 
You know, the second part is, and this is the beauty of treatment, is reaching out and asking for help. You know, at care and treatment centers, you're going to get incredible experts, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, counselors, other recovering executives who had a similar experience who can give you advice because oftentimes our best thinking is bad thinking. Um, and we're going to give you a plan. We're going to, you know, and one of the beauties for anybody who's been successful is that we're typically used to developing a plan. Well, we're going to help you develop a plan now to live your life uh, in a recovery manner. And the net result of all of this is, again, is getting more than you bargain for, which is typically better relationships with the people you love, uh, better health, um, better, um, you know, internal feelings. So, you know, we talk about kind of a spiritual well-being. Uh, you know, mindfulness is, you know, is a very popular topic today. And we talk about, you know, really becoming a human being and not just a human doing. And uh, all of those are, are uh, programs that we, that we uh, espouse at Care and Treatment Centers. Doug, how do you measure success? I mean, you have all of these treatment centers, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, around the country. And uh, I guess, unfortunately, I know so many people who would benefit from the, your treatment centers, both seniors, adolescents, all the population that, that you, you, you uh, take care of. But how do you measure success? How do you know that your programs are successful? I mean, do you do follow-ups or do you, you know, the recidivism rate? Is, is that part of it? Or how do you, you know what I'm saying? Yours, your plans is compared to, say, other treatment or rehab centers around the country. Care and Treatment Centers takes great pride in our follow-up. And, and it's something that we've always been concerned about as one of the oldest and largest uh, nonprofits in the country is, is at the end of the day, we want people to get well. You know, we, we have no private equity. We have no owners. Nobody owns Karen. We're here to serve the community. And we've always taken the view is that if we're not making a difference, there really is no purpose for us being here. So we need to make a difference. So, so Karen Treatment Center is ha- has one of the longest track records of actually following patients to see what happens. We've been doing that for over three decades um, all of the early follow-up, quite frankly, was relatively primitive in the way that we did it. I think the good news is that we were one of the first to at least show an interest in it. About a decade ago, we began working with the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of our nation's top uh, research institutions in the country, because we wanted to work with them to help us to determine are people getting well. So we have followed in the last decade probably 30,000 people, um, and, and to see what kind of results that we have. And since so much of that is self-report, again, a lot of the results are considered somewhat suspect. So two years ago with the University of Pennsylvania, we developed another program where we actually, in addition to self-report, we also talk to the family, their sponsor, their therapist, their employer, and do randomized urine drug screens. And the results of our program have really been quite impressive. Uh, 59% of individuals one year after Karen have not had a drink or a drug. Another 20% uh, on top of that 59%, bringing the number up to 79%, uh, are sober at the end of the year, which means maybe they had uh, a relapse somewhere along the year, but in the last 30 days, they're clean and sober. So we're up to 79%. And then another 15% say we've not been able to stop drinking or using completely, but our life's a whole lot better. We don't drive after we drink. We don't do it at work. Uh, we don't harm our family. And so, so they life moderate has gotten their behavior. better. They're at yes, least they, they've yeah. gotten better, correct. Yeah. So, 
So from a success perspective, we say if you're going to have a chronic illness like cancer or hypertension or diabetes, uh, addiction is one of the best chronic illnesses to have because the recovery rate is so spectacular. Well, that's all I can say is that's inspiring. <laughs> um, now, I just want to kind of bring this into the political arena, if we can, because the title of the book is Flying Over the Pig Pen, Leadership Lessons from Growing Up on a Farm, and we have been talking about that, you personally. What, can we put this into the political arena? I mean, you're talking about leadership and having a plan and setting an example, and you have all in, in the book all kinds of examples of what makes a good leader. Uh, uh, so what about in terms of our, the leaders that we're, kind of, uh, we're taking a look at now in the Republican and right. Democratic parties? Do we have leaders there? kind of follow your agenda or I mean well now we're sort of focusing on the Republicans with the right, debates right. and stuff yeah well I think that, um, when it comes to leadership um, one of the chapters of the book I actually talk about uh, you know there have been a number of different surveys of American people of sort of what resonates I mean like who will we follow and there's a number of characteristics that, that are very important honesty vision inspiring fair straightforward, courageous, all of those are characteristics that really resonate with, American, you know, with the American public. And so in many ways, uh, those are individuals that we typically elect, people who, you know, who convince us that they have more of that than, than others. And I think many of our, um, the, the current folks running for, for president, many uh, I mean, they certainly have that as part of their characteristics. So I think the answer to that is yes. There's some other parts of the book that maybe don't necessarily resonate with politicians because I talk about humble leadership. I talk about humility. I talk about giving credit to others. I have humble and humility. <laughs> <laughs> right. Those, those are ones uh, that maybe in the political arena um, you know, tend, to, tend to get to sort of short uh, shrift, but I think there's many Americans who do like that, whether or not that gets you elected or not. I'm not a, you know, political scientist, so I, I don't know. I, I personally like leaders who have a, a sense of, of humility, uh, but also willing to be courageous and make make tough choices. Uh, well, I'm trying to fit those categories into each one of the candidates that I'm thinking yeah, about. It does right, give yeah. I, I, I have too, and I mean I. Um, and, and, but there are some, you know, in, you know that uh, you know, if you start going through in your mind, there are certainly some uh, who have these characteristics, uh, you know, in a higher, higher quantity than, than some of the others. And, uh, you know, and it will be interesting when we get a year from now to see which ones, uh, you know, which one have survived the uh, political process and, and we eventually look at, at electing. And also, how do they fit into the rest of the world? Obviously, we are really uh, a uh, we are a global economy, and we're global in every other right. way, right? So that, like, exactly. you know, do we, you know, elect leaders that are honest and fair and and and, and humble and humility? I've just written down some of the adjectives that you described, but the rest of the leaders in the world, I mean, do they fit into those categories? And if we have somebody like that, then what happens? Can they lead in that kind of an environment or? Contact exactly. No, that's that's exactly right. And and one of the things I should probably just when I talk about uh, you know the you know the subtitle of the book is leadership lessons from growing up on a farm. A, a couple of things I just want to say about being a, a leader. 
the, the title of the book, Flying Over the Pig Pen, the whole idea was pig pen is not meant to be derogatory. That means I happen to grow up on a pig farm. So the idea is we all start somewhere. So the, the leadership lessons, and as I mentioned earlier, every chapter starts with a farm story and is to provide a lesson and some practical tools so that you can become successful in whatever you choose to be. We all have an opportunity to be a leader on a daily basis, whether it's at the local PTA, whether it's on the Little League team we coach, whether it's uh, in a work group at our place of employment. So the idea is really to help everybody be a little bit more successful uh, than what you are by than where you currently are by utilizing these these lessons. And and uh, I was fortunate that I had a father who shared this with me, and, and kind of my goal was to put it down on paper, and now through the beauty of, of Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com, anybody can go and get flying over the pig pen. And there's one other beauty uh, tying into the addiction field is that uh, all the proceeds uh, from the book do go to Care and Treatment Center's scholarship fund to help people who, who maybe couldn't afford to uh, come to Karen to begin a new life in, in recovery. So. Doug, you know, you're talking about coming from it's sort of, you know, flying over the pig pen, not meant to be derogatory, Um, coming from humble beginnings, which some people may not, but you came from humble beginnings, but then you had a father who was a great mentor and leader for you and somebody to look up to. What do you say to those people who don't have that? Maybe they come from humble beginnings, and then they also don't have anyone, let's say, close to them, parents uh, or siblings or people in their environment who are there for them? What do they do? Um, I, have a, I have several chapters in the book about the selecting a mentor. I'm a big believer in that we learn from people. And so a big part of flying over the pig pen is, is uh, why would you select someone? How would you select someone? Who would you select? And then once you have selected them and in sort of engaged in this relationship, how do you use that mentor effectively? I just happen to be blessed um, with someone who did this with me naturally, and you're absolutely right. Not everybody has a father or a father figure or, or a present father, and, uh, and that was sort of the beauty of flying over the pig pen is that everybody can sort of get those same lessons that I got you know, naturally uh, by reading this book. And, and, and I really kind of see the book for sort of three groups of people, the person just sort of getting started in life, somebody whose maybe their career or life is in neutral, and then maybe somebody whose life hits a crisis, such as mine did uh, seven and a half years ago when I confronted my alcoholism. And, and the lessons in Flying Over the Pig Pen can help anyone be successful wherever they may, may be on their life's journey. Right, so... We need people to read the book. We can go online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. Uh, what about websites that uh, people can go to to find out more about what you're doing and also about your book? Yeah, uh, Karen Treatment Centers, our website is Karen, C-A-R-O-N, dot org. can learn about Karen. And one of the things I want to just, uh, I'm so delighted that you asked me about our outcome studies and one of the key things for any chronic illness is enough time. People ask me all the time, "Is like, how, how does Karen have such good outcomes when other facilities don't? The biggest reason is that we have a great staff that keeps individuals engaged in the treatment process long enough. It would be like any type of chronic illness if you don't get enough of it. Like if, if you need to go to 21 sessions of chemotherapy for your cancer and you go to seven, 
you know what, you're not going to address your chemo. I mean, you're not going to address your cancer. I mean, somebody who has hypertension and is supposed to take um, uh, medication every day and they decide to take it every fourth day, they're not going to address their hypertension. And so that's a key thing with good treatment at care and treatment centers is that we give you what you need. And one of the beauties of a nonprofit is that we don't let money get in the way of giving you what you need. It's all about the treatment. It's been great having you on the show this morning, and uh, obviously lots of good information and more information in the book. Flying Over the Pig Pen, Leadership Lessons from Growing Up on a Farm. Doug Tiemann, thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. I love your show, and thanks for having me on it. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break right now, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Don't go away, because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Dr. Vin Chung, MD. Uh, his new book is Where the Wind Leads, A Refugee Family's Miraculous Story of Loss, Re- Rescue, and Redemption. And Dr. Chung graduated from Harvard, magna cum laude, with a BA in biology, attended Harvard Medical School, uh, studied at the University of Sydney, was a Fulbright scholar, and uh, completed a Master of Pharmaceutical Sciences. He, very impressive credentials. He 
completed his dermatology residency at Emory University. Uh, and he currently serves on World Vision's National Leadership Council. He lives with his wife and three children uh, in Arkansas and has a successful private practice. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Okay, so, Dr. Chung, this is your story uh, about you were born in South Vietnam just eight months after it fell to the communists, which was in 1975, Family was very wealthy, had a big business uh, worth probably, as you have said, worth mil- would have been worth millions today. But then there was the communist takeover. Your family lost everything, and that's, I guess, where the story begins. That's right. So the, this is a, a book about my family story, but it really could have been anybody's story in America. And uh, it was after um, the fall of Saigon in April. 1975, when my story started, uh, we were a very wealthy family with a rice milling empire worth millions. And after the communists took over, they took away everything that we had, our business, our cars. They kicked us out of our own house and forced us to live in a little shack without electricity or running water in a rural Mekong Delta. And it was there that I was born eight months later. You were born in the Mekong Delta, you know. We just, I actually was in Vietnam in January, last January. And I, of course, had watched the war, the Vietnam War, on television as a teenager. So for me to go to Saigon and Hanoi, uh, it was a very strange feeling. Um, just kind of, uh, you know, this the first time that I had ever been there, but... Um, to now be back into these two huge big cities. Uh, have you been back since? I assume you have. I have. I, I went back about 10 years ago, and I visited my family there. And that was, uh, that was part of um, the story, too, was that my entire extended family left Vietnam, but uh, some of us didn't make it, and my family did. And so it was a a surreal experience to walk back to Vietnam and to see the contrast of our lives. Because when I went back, I was about to graduate from Harvard Medical School, had a bright future ahead of me. I had lived the American dream, but then my uh, cousins, my aunt, uncle, who who left with my family, uh, they didn't make it, and they drifted back to Vietnam, and they're currently stuck in this country. Uh, They sometimes get electricity, uh, they get water uh, sporadically, uh, but there's no future. And so it really speaks to uh, what can happen uh, in America and what the American dream uh, is like. Well, and I think particularly, at least I was struck by, uh, I don't know if the word is inadequate, but the health care. And uh, I, I, I mean, we were in a, uh, we had a driver, I actually can't remember which city we were in, and uh, asking him about his family, and he said something. You know, I said, yeah, his parents, he was a young man in his 40s, and he's, uh, his father had died and his mother had died, and I said, oh, how, how old was your mother when she died? And he said, oh, in her 50s. And I said, what did she die of? And he said, well, old age. In the rural Mekong Delta, life uh, is, is still very basic. Uh, people still die from simple, preventable infectious disease. I had a, a family member who died from a tooth abscess, and that would just be unheard of here in this country. 
So, you know, maybe we should start out with, I guess, your story. Um, you say it's, it's a miraculous story, and it is a miraculous story because even you have family who, who didn't, weren't able to leave and they went back, but then there were those who come here as you did, but they don't graduate from Harvard or Harvard Medical School, uh, you know, and they initially don't even speak the language and are as successful as you are. What do you think, why is your success story for those who did make it here? Because there are many people, as I, as I said, who come here, but they don't make it either. I mean, how, how, let's, you know, maybe get more detailed about your story and why you think you made it. How, you know, what sure. was it? A, yeah. Sure. So after living under persecution uh, for several years, my parents and my extended family decided that it was better to risk dying at sea. And we knew that about half the boat people who left uh, died either at sea or were attacked and killed by pirates. But we believed that that risk was worth taking because staying behind, there was no future. We knew that regardless of how hard we work, anything and everything could be taken away at any moment. There was just no security in the future of living under communism. And so my entire extended family and myself, I was three and a half years old at this point, we packed in a boat with about 290 people and we sailed out into the South China Sea. It was a one-way trip without a destination in mind. And it was there that we hoped to be admitted to a refugee camp. And out at sea, we were attacked by violent pirates who robbed us, assaulted us. And our boat actually made it to the beach of Malaysia where we hoped to be admitted. But instead, on the beach, we were greeted with brutality because the soldiers beat the men. And we were essentially imprisoned on the beach for days and forced to march on the scalding hot sand. Uh, my mother was pregnant at this time, and she suffered a miscarriage and almost bled to death. And so that was how we were greeted uh, as refugees. Uh, and then eventually, the Malaysian military decided to get rid of us. Uh, that was how they fixed the problem, uh, that they packed us into four little fishing boats without a motor, uh, without food, without water, towed us out to the sea and cut the ropes and left us to die. Uh, Doctor, you were, what, three and a half, four? Yes, I was three and a half. So your response, it would seem to me, as a four-year-old, you're with your parents. Um, were you afraid? Or because you were with your parents, it was, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, So, and what were you feeling at the time as a, as a young child, which is going to be different, yeah. obviously, than your parents? Yes, you know, so I, I, had, um, I had recurring... Uh, nightmares where I was submerged underwater for a while. I remember the taste of salt, salt water, but fortunately I was young, so I didn't have this, the same level of psychological trauma or PTSD that you would expect for someone who would be older, such as my parents and my, my older sibling. But at one point we were packed in a boat, 93 refugees, uh, drifting aimlessly without food, without water, uh, at the brink of death, people were severely dehydrated, uh, people were hallucinating, and we were so desperate that some of the mothers on board were discussing whether or not to drown their children to end the suffering, because we just didn't know how much longer it would be. Uh, but it was on day six that we were rescued by World Vision, which is the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world today. Uh, they sent a ship out because they saw what was going on, and and they found us and rescued us. And it was from there that we were 
relocated to a refugee camp for three months, and then a small church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, sponsored my family. So that's how um, I arrived in this country. Right, so what what year was that? That was like 1976, or it was 79. 79. So that was four years yes. uh, after um, the fall of of uh, Saigon. That's and then, all right, so you wind up and you're in Arkansas. I mean, it could you know, it, Arkansas is a 180. <laughs> from, yes. Yeah, from, <laughs> yeah, it was a culture shock. <laughs> yeah. What happened? How about your father here? Your father was head of this big company, multi-million dollar company, and now he's in Arkansas not being able to obviously speak the language and uh, with, you know, young children. Um, mm-hmm. How did they respond to you? Exactly. People in Arkansas, you know, and, and how did your father, what kind of job, what did he do? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's part of what the message I want to communicate through the book Where the Wind Leads is that uh, the American dream is a, a set of opportunities about how people can craft their future and to, to design it the way they want, but it requires two other components. Uh, one of them is that, you know, we had neighbors who helped us, we had a church who reached out to us, had teachers and, and coaches and kind neighbors who helped us out. You know, that's the other part of it. And then finally, the, the, the third component is, is just hard work. It's simply hard work. So, my father was a very wealthy and powerful man in Vietnam, but in this new country, he found himself not knowing the language, not understanding the culture, having no skills that he can apply. So he took whatever job he could. He ended up working in a factory on the assembly line with his bare hands, and uh, over the years, he had three more children. So he stuck with his job for about three decades to make sure that his 11 children can go to school. And today, all 11 of his children have graduated from college. We have 22 degrees, including five master's degrees and six doctorate degrees. Uh, we've graduated from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, NYU, UPenn, and other universities. And so, Don't you think, doctor, uh, there's something in your genes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't think so. I, I really don't think that I'm, I'm uniquely special. Uh, we worked hard. Uh, every day, and we sacrificed. And you look at what what was needed. My family needed uh, my father's sacrifice. And so I think that's part of the American dream is to recognize that nobody is really self-made, but because I could not have done it without my parents. But then you take it to another level. You think about the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. We didn't earn it. I didn't shed a drop of blood for the freedom that we have today, but instead it was shed by the courageous men and women generations before me. And so part of the American dream is to recognize that is that the opportunities we have did not come free. The opportunities that we have were not something that we have earned, but we must protect them. We must work hard and to honor the sacrifices of others. And then finally, once we reach it, it is in our responsibility to go back and make sure that others behind us can enjoy the same freedoms. So giving back is is critical, and obviously that's something you and your whole family have done. What do we say to now, because this is sort of happening all over again uh, in Syria, refugees trying to, you know, seek refuge in Western Europe here, um, what's the message for them? That's right. You know, for I, us, or for the country, for all of us, I guess, not just for the refugees, but you know, yeah. for the 
Yeah, you know, you know, when I saw the the picture of that little three year old boy on the beach, down on the beach, it was it struck close to home because I was three years years old when I left, and I when I saw that picture, I realized that that could have been me, and so I see how I see why people are, the refugees are leaving today, and I see how they're treated, and it is the same thing that's happening uh, with my family left Vietnam. I think that we need to first of all recognize that when people leave their country, it's not a voluntary choice. Uh, you leave because you face persecution and the risk of death in your own home. And the other thing that people need to recognize as well is that about half the refugees are children, including me, uh, like that little boy. And right now, in uh, the Syrian refugees, about half of them are children. And then the other thing I alluded to was that you know, it's a very complex political problem. But while my family was drifting around in the South China Sea, while the countries were deliberating on what to do with this problem, it wasn't the political leaders who rescued my family. It was simple American Christians who acted uh, to follow their conscience. And it was them that uh, rescued my family. And it was a small church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, that sponsored my family. So today, when we look at the refugee problem, yes, it's a big political and legal mess. But we, as individuals, should feel empowered to act according to our conscience and to act according to to how we feel. Uh, And and it's not that we will fix all the political problems as individuals, but uh, we, uh, as Americans, can do something about this problem. So you're saying we can't simply just look at what our political leaders are going to do or not going to do. We have to take responsibilities ourselves. Well, you have the this, this particular group that help you, the Christian group. But there are lots of different groups, I guess, that we can attach ourselves to if we want to make a difference to the refugees. Absolutely. There are, you know, I, I speak on behalf of World Vision. I, I serve on the board, and I know that this is an organization that works on the field. But there are other organizations that help. And, and we, and, you know, each person can make a small financial contribution, and with enough people, we can impact uh, a large number of people. And we're not going to be able to do everything, but if everyone does something, it'll still make a big difference. I, I, sometimes I get cynical. I want to make a contribution. I don't know who to make it to. And then I think, well, it's not really going to get to the, where it needs to get to. So I have to be very careful about, you know, which organization I'm donating to. Some um, do what they say. Others don't necessarily, and the monies don't get there. So that's another issue. I think sometimes people are reluctant to, to donate their monies for these kinds of causes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a bystander effect. And then there's also the sense of uh, being paralyzed by fear or indecision. And, and, I, and I believe that people, we should be very responsible, uh, do our homework. Uh, but once we find out, we, you know, we need to realize that there are small things that we can do at whatever we feel is appropriate. Tell us about your own children. You have three children. You know, we've yeah, well, probably... we actually have four now. Oh. <laughs> Since the book came out, so we, we adopted a, a little boy, and uh, he's, um, he's part Caucasian, part Native American, uh, part African American, uh, and the rest of my family are part Chinese, Vietnamese, and Korean. And so uh, to, to today, you know, we're an all-American family. You are an all-American family. You've got to bring the best of all to... <laughs> That's right. That's, yeah. 
That's great. Yeah. That's so. How old is he? So he's a year and a half now. So a baby. So you have four. Yes. So are you going to do what your father? Eleven? Are you heading to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know my my wife grew up in a family with one brother, so she had two. And I grew up in a family with 11, so we're, we're kind of meeting halfway. <laughs> That's a great. So what's the story you tell your kids? Cause, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how old's your oldest? My oldest is 10. And, so, you know, I, I tell my kids the same thing that I had mentioned earlier, and, and I hope that when they read the book, they'll, they'll understand, you know, what the American dream really is. And is that, one, this country is so special that... In no other country would I believe that my family could have um, achieved the success that we have today. And two, uh, you know, you have to work hard. And I don't care who you are, what stage of life you're in, uh, to get somewhere requires just hard work every single day, day in and day out. And then finally, the third thing is that you need to give back. And so my son today, we participated in a race uh, called Team for Team World Vision, where we raced. Uh, money for clean water in Africa, and he personally raised $45,000. And uh, knowing that every $50 that he raised can lead to clean water for one child across the world. And so it's, it's just, I always want to challenge him to let him know that uh, he can do something to make a difference in this world. And it doesn't have to be large. You don't have to wait to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, but where you are, you can still make a difference. Yeah, you don't have to start out as Malala, but you can, right? You can exactly. Yeah, and I think that exactly. that's a really good point because I think sometimes parents wait until you know the kids are in high school before they start getting them involved necessarily and in, in that's giving right. back. But yeah, you just do it according to what's appropriate yeah. for the age, and that starts at you know you can start at three years old or. Exactly. Uh, you, yeah. you know, not only high school, but there's some people who are working right now that say, oh, I'll wait until I'm retired and I do it. You know, one thing is that you don't know how long you're going to live. And two, I think it's it's a habit that that you start early on, just like teaching kids to be respectful of others. You teach them when they're young. You teach them to say please. You teach them to say thank you. And I feel that generosity is another attribute that goes a long way, and, and I'm so proud of him because of what he's done. And I think another piece that I want to add, because you listed the things that are necessary, this is a great country, and we have the resources, but of course you have to utilize the resources in, the, in a good way with good values, which obviously you and your family have done. But I think another piece that you mentioned is important, like getting help, people who helped you, just you know, everyday people, living in this small town in Arkansas. Um, it's, it's not just... Politicians, it's not just the money and it's not just the resources. It's availing you people who really, in your own community, can help you. And, and that's, sort that's of, yeah. right. And I think it goes to speak to the role of the federal government. You know, when my family came over, my father had 11 children, but we did not stay on public assistance. We did not wait for the federal government to help us out. He worked uh, long and hard in the factory and all of us worked and we studied, and so we didn't wait for the federal government to help us out. At the same time, our neighbors who saw us didn't wait for the federal government to come and help us. They were empowered and they were action-oriented, and so they helped you know, to, to the level they could. People gave us food. They gave us clothes. Uh, the church uh, paid for my family's uh, first six months of rental in a little house. 
I think that's what makes uh, the best part of being American is that we're action oriented. We uh, we see something and and we act. We have the liberty and we feel empowered to make a difference instead of sitting back waiting for someone else to do it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think you're talking about this whole sense of community. Do you think it's? I shouldn't ask you this question now because we only have few minutes left, but mm-hmm. do you think the sense of community is not here in the same way it was, let's say, in 19, what did you say, 1979? I mean, we're kind of like, we don't have the kinds of communities that we had then, um, yeah. the, because, well, you know, people, yeah, people move you know, around, the there are lots of reasons for it. Yeah. Exactly. We're certainly a lot more transient, and I think the communities look a little different, but I believe that communities can still be effective. I mean, think about social media. Think about what can happen for example, with a picture of a little boy, it went viral and it went around the world and it raised awareness to the refugee crisis. Uh, right now through the Internet, uh, my, my son's fundraising for, for clean water in Africa, it, it wouldn't have reached 45000 if it weren't for the Internet. And so it, it looks different, but conceptually, it is still the same. I believe that through community, uh, we can still uh, learn about the needs of others and to make a difference. It just yeah, looks so different. That, that's a great point, using the, the social media. That's our community, and we can use it in a good way. Because I guess, I mean, usually I have people on the show talking about how bad social media is and how it's, <laughs> just, you know, destroying us. Well, this is obviously yeah. exactly the opposite. So it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so it is important to use that. That is, and it's a world community. I mean, you're right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just another tool. It's a smaller world now, and then we just have to decide is it going to be for a benefit or, or to our detriment? Right. All right, so let's make sure that everybody knows they can buy your book online, bookstores everywhere, Where the Wind Leads, A Refugee Family's Miraculous Story of Loss, Rescue, and Redemption. And we're talking to the author, Dr. Vin Chung. Um, also, we're talking about social media, so just tell us, where, where, what, where we should be, you know, watching on fa- Facebook. You have a Facebook page, so that we can. Yes, so, yeah. Yes, yeah, so we have a Facebook. The book's available online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all of the author proceeds goes directly back to World Vision to help uh, to help the poor and the vulnerable around the world. And that's just my gesture of giving back. Well, you're doing a great job, and it was a really a pleasure to have you on the show this morning, Dr. Vin Chung. Um, you know, thanks so much for being with us. Where the Wind Leads, the Refugees' Families, Miraculous Story of Loss, Rescue, and Redemption. Uh, we are going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening Great. to Thank the Catherine Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you, Doctor. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet 